Thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a little bit wet and cold out there. Uh, sometimes here at Cato, we say we've been fighting for limited government for long, but so long, but uh, maybe we should be working on trying to make it snow more often if uh, we really wanted to limit government effectively. Uh, I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. I thank you all for coming out to this uh, event on the tax code, uh, which is uh, riveting stuff. I thank everyone who's tuning in online. When I went to law school, uh, I had one sort of big rule when I was registering for classes, which was any class but tax. Uh, I would take any class but tax. It prepared me not to be a tax lawyer, prepared me exactly for the job I have today. And I never thought I'd be holding an event on the tax code. But of course, it is not really just the tax code we're talking about. We're talking about core political speech, we're talking about political organization, and we're talking about regulating that, what I would consider through the back door of the tax code. Now, <clears throat> a few months ago, I found myself in a meeting, uh, which some people here who were in attendance, uh, shortly after these rules were proposed, which was on November 29th, the Black Friday, so not coincident, I don't. I don't believe, but on November 29th, the rules were proposed, and a few weeks later, I was in a meeting with a bunch of organizations talking about what to do about these rules. And I realized two things. One of them was, this was one of the secret meetings that Rachel Maddow would write about if she heard about it. It would be a secret Coke back meeting to spend unlimited money in elections. That was the first thing I realized, and I was wondering where the druid robes were and the candles and everything else were supposed to have. But then I also realized there was something very surreal about the whole moment because we were simply trying to talk about how to organize and speak in the political sphere, which the IRS had made almost impossible for a certain organization that had been doing it for a long time, namely the 501c4. And that seemed kind of crazy to me that we were trying, we were having a meeting about how the IRS was cracking down on our political activity. So <clears throat> campaign finance law is incredibly complex, and everyone up here knows more about it than I do, uh, which is one reason why I'm going to shut up and let them talk in just a sec. Campaign finance law hinges upon micro distinctions upon what did you say? Did you use the words, the magic words, vote for, vote against, or things like that? And many of the lawyers up here have been working uh, to help advise people on how to get around those laws. But you add in the IRS regulations on top of it, which are more micro distinctions and very unclear distinctions in the proposed rules, and you have a huge problem. At last count, as Larry just told me, we we're at 43,600. 143,615. 143,615 comments on the proposed rules, which means people at the IRS are going to have a lot of reading to do if they actually want to get through the comments. And most of them, as far as I can tell, are quite negative. I have not been here that long in DC, but I have personally have never seen a rule so poorly constructed with so wide-ranging wide implications. Now, we, this is of course not happening in a vacuum. We've had a conversation over the last five years in this country about dark money and campaigns and people trying to spend money to influence elections. And of course, we had a targeting conservative, allegedly targeting conservative groups issue, which Lita will be talking about. Uh, and so in that context, our speakers will also be discussing these rules. We have a very uh, wide array, but uh, at Cato, we have a policy to try and bring in opposition speakers on panels. This proved incredibly difficult because I couldn't find someone worthy of this panel who supported these rules as they're written. 
I could find people who would talk about dark money and the need to curb the activities of C4s, but in terms of how they pertain to these rules, I couldn't find that exact person. So we brought in together a group of people from different sides of the aisle who all come together on the belief that political speech and political activity should be relatively undercovered, unencumbered by onerous and needless regulations from the IRS. So I will introduce these speakers before they speak. Our first speaker to give us a little bit of an overview is Cleta Mitchell. Cleta Mitchell is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Foley and Lardner LLP and a member of the firm's political law practice. With more than 40 years of experience in law, politics, and public policy, Ms. Mitchell advises nonprofit issue organizations, corporations, candidates, campaigns, and individuals on state and federal campaign finance law, election law, and compliance issues related to lobbying, ethics, and financial disclosure. She has taught dozens of seminars on the subject of lobbying. She authored the Lobbying Compliance Handbook, published by Columbia Books. In 2012, the National Journal named her one of Washington's 25 most influential women. She was a teaching fellow at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University in 1981, and was the Shapiro Fellow at the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. And she was also a member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives from 1976 to 1984. She received her BA from the University of Oklahoma and her JD from the University of Oklahoma, which is coincidentally where my dad got both of his degrees. So uh, boomer sooner to on that point, but Cleta. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, uh, and thank you, brave souls, for being with us here today. It is a little nippy out there. I, for one, will be glad when spring uh, arrives. I'm a little tired of the snow. Um, I want to give you, I want to put all of this in context. I mean, how did, how in the world did the IRS end up in this situation where it has uh, been the, a focal point of attention for the last several years and uh, has now thrust itself into a regulatory environment involving things that it has absolutely no business involving itself in. Um, when I want to start at the very beginning, because when people come to see me, I always say, you know, look, you know, you come, I mean, I deal, my, my day job is I deal with the business and regulation of politics and policy. It is a very highly regulated business. All the things that Trevor told you that uh, I'm involved in are all subject to a great many laws and regulations at either the federal, state, or local level. And whether it's lobbying, whether it's ethics laws related to uh, elected officials or government employees, whether it is uh, campaigns and candidates and organizations, issue groups who want to be involved in the policy or political arena, that they're subject to a lot of rules and regulations and laws. So when people come to me, they say, well, we want to do X. And what I always say is you tell me what you want to do, and I will try to help you figure out what is the best platform legally, the structure, what it is you can do, what kind of money can you raise, what kind of money can you spend, what kind of reports do you have to file. And sometimes I have to listen really carefully to figure out where they fit. Because uh, the very first thing in, in any venture in America, and I would say it, this is probably not true if you're in the black market and only dealing cash, but that's actually not what I deal with, so, <laughs> so I don't know how that works. I've never figured out how you, don't, how you do that, but um, that takes a lot smarter person than I am. But so the first thing you have to do is to open a bank account. And in order to open a bank account, you have to file a form with the IRS, and you have to tell the IRS on the form, this is what 
this entity is. If any of us open a bank account, we give our social security number. But if you have an artificial entity, whether it is a trust or an estate or an LLC or a corporation, you have to go to the IRS and you fill out a form, the SS4 form, and you get a, a number back and that's your employer ID number and that's the number that is used in order to open a bank account. It is really, that's where it all begins. And for an organization, a group of people who want to be involved primarily in policy, lobbying some political, but lobbying and, pol and political and policy, that the place they belong is as a 501c4 uh, social welfare organization. It is a bit of a catch-all. It is, uh, it's kind of the miscellaneous. It's not a a horticultural or labor union. It's not a C5, as Larry Gold will talk about momentarily. It's not a 501c6 trade association, a, a business league. It's not a country club or a fraternity sorority, a social organization. It's not a veterans organization. All of these have their own separate uh, paragraphs in Section 501c of the tax code. And so a 501c4 is, is pretty much where m most citizens' organizations, unless they want to primarily be doing promoting a candidate or political party, that primarily if that's what they want to do, because Section 527 is you're supposed to be, that's going to be your primary purpose, and you're going to be spending virtually all your money on elections. And if that's not your plan, you don't belong there. I don't care what Fred Wertheimer or the New York Times says, if that's not where you spend most of your time, energy, and money, that is not where you belong in the tax code. And so in order to then uh, be recognized as a 501c4 organization, um, you fill out this form. This is the form. And there are instructions on the IRS website this is the form 1024, and you fill that out. And before 2000, before uh, the end of 2009, 2000, early 2010, before that time, when you filled this out and you turned this in and you paid your filing fee, you could expect that to get a letter of recognition from the IRS for a 501c4 organization would take anywhere from three to four weeks, maybe two months. And if you got follow-up questions, and I have done literally dozens and dozens and dozens of these over many years. And in the, if you got follow-up questions, they would be about this form. What began to happen in late 2009, early 2010, was I began to realize that my applications were being submitted, but we weren't hearing anything back. And then in the spring of 2000, my, my most, you know, case number one for me was an application filed in October 2009. And that organization was founded to engage grassroots activities in opposition to Obamacare. They did not do any political activity. They did only lobbying against Obamacare. And they did a lot of that. And in June of 2010, besides cashing our check, our filing fee, we'd heard nothing from the IRS. And in June of 2010, I get a letter from the IRS not from Cincinnati, but from Washington, from the Washington office, asking to see a copy of all the ads that we had run against Obamacare. And that was a real interesting experience. Now, the IRS has taken the position, because I now represent two different clients who sue, who've sued the IRS, and in one of them, the IRS is taking the position that all that additional information that we provided to the IRS in response to all the follow-up letters 
Well, that was just voluntary. We did that voluntarily. Well, the fact is they didn't read the letter because the letter says if you don't answer the questions and provide the follow-up information, your application will be deemed to have been withdrawn. So fast forward 2010, 2011, 2012, I'm dealing with the IRS on an ongoing basis on behalf of several different clients. And what ultimately began, what we now know is that the IRS, for whatever reason, um, lots of reasons, lots of public pressure because of the, uh, because of the concern that somehow uh, after Citizens United, there were going to be these these major corporations were going to start, I mean, running ads attacking candidates. Well, you know, I mean, I don't remember seeing any Coca-Cola ads for or against candidates. And uh, frankly, the truth of the matter is the worst thing that the campaign finance reformers did insofar as corporate money was when they abolished the corporate money that the political parties have because the corporations used to split their money 50-50 and always make sure they gave half of their money to the Democratic National Committee and half their money to the Republican National Committee because corporations are notoriously wimpy when it comes to um, particularly public corporations. They're not going, they don't want to be perceived as partisan. But what it did do was that it gave the opportunity for citizens organizations like C4s, but also C5s and C6s and other 501c groups other than charitable organizations like the Cato Institute it gave them the opportunity to spend their funds, um, a, a minority to be sure, not a majority of their funds, but to spend some funds working on um, uh, making political expenditures. Now, you know, we could go and I could spend all day talking about all of the different uh, things that have happened since um, the targeting was uh, admitted by the IRS. And there are a lot of things that, that I'm, ha and I'm happy to talk about that. But how we got into this situation with these regulations that w the comment period just closed uh, last Thursday about is that the IRS somehow decided to take it on itself during all of the push, the all of the work that they were doing to try to anticipate what a 501c4 applicant was going to do, not just what they said they are done, not just filling out the application, but now essentially they began to conduct program audits, asking, some of my clients got questions saying, uh, asking where the president had spoken in every, all the speeches that she had given and where she planned to speak every, in the coming year. Um, all the co copies of all of their tweets and Facebook posts and whether or not they had invited candidates to come and speak or office holders to speak, whether they'd hosted candidate debates, et cetera. And, uh, and when you see the regulations and you've seen the letters that these organizations received prior to uh, in the, you know, 2010, 11, 12, what you begin to realize is it's all the same topics. And the IRS decided that it was going to take the questions that it had posed to all those hundreds and hundreds of citizens groups and make them permanent in the way of, of the uh, rules and regulations converting normal activity of organizations to a new definition of candidate-related political activity and really and permanently say none of that would count for a C4's primary purpose. So it's, it's really quite... Um, Remarkable to me that they thought that they could just do this under cover of darkness. I mean, as, as Trevor said, Black Friday, I was uh, 
you know, I, they really eliminated about 40% of our comment period. I think if they'd done it on a regular work day uh, after the first of the year, we'd have twice as many uh, comments. But with that, I'll stop and um, turn it over to whoever needs to speak next. I'm happy to answer your questions. Uh, thank you, Cleta. Uh, next, we'll be hearing from Gabe Rotman, Gabriel Rotman. He's a legislative council policy advisor for the American Civil Liberties Union, where he advocates in Congress, the White House, and federal agencies for First Amendment rights of freedom of speech, press assembly, and petition. His portfolio includes, among other issues, mass media content regulation, telecommunications and internet law, intellectual property, national security, and press freedom. He has worked at the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office as a communications staffer and senior writer. He practiced law from 2007 to 2012 at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett in Washington, D.C., with an emphasis in antitrust and foreign investment review. He has joint honors at a BA from McGill University in political science and history and a JD from Georgetown University Law Center. Gabriel. Thanks very much for, for having me here. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for putting this together. Uh, so, so I've been working on this issue for quite a while now. Uh, and the, uh, this all started actually because there's been concern with the existing standard um, that, uh, that's currently in place for what constitutes political activity by a 501c4 organization, the quote unquote facts and circumstances test, which is essentially just totality of the circumstances and it grants complete discretion to the IRS to determine what constitutes political activity and then how much uh, is too much, how much would you know, potentially jeopardize uh, somebody's 501c4 status. Uh, so at, at the time that this rule was released, we were actually working on a petition for rulemaking asking the IRS to do exactly what they did here to uh, issue a proposed rule that would finally draw a very bright line test between what constitutes political activity and, and what doesn't. Um, and the IRS deserves a lot of credit for taking action here. It's just unfortunately they went in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, so let me focus a little bit on what the proposed rule would do. Uh, the ACLU submitted pretty extensive comments uh, about two or three weeks before the, the comment period closed. Uh, and we focused, we focused very carefully on what the proposed rule would do practically for a 501c4 organization like the ACLU, or the ACLU actually is two, uh, two, two different entities. It's a 501c3 charitable organization where most of our litigation activity, some of our lobbying takes place. And then we have a 501c4 entity, which uh, I primarily work for, uh, which allows us to engage in un unlimited lobbying activity. Uh, we, are a we, we are, as a matter of written black letter policy, completely nonpartisan. We, we do not uh, support or oppose uh, candidates for office. Uh, and we, and it, if we ever take positions on nominees for appointed office, it, it, it's an extreme rarity. Um, we have historically for 90 years been completely nonpartisan, which is important to note when you're looking at how these rules would affect a, a legitimate issue advocacy group, you know, like the ACLU or, or like m many of the groups that were uh, subject to uh, undue scrutiny um, back, back in May. So the, the rule, the fundamental idea behind the rule is that it conflates nonpartisan issue advocacy with partisan politicking. 
it, it removes any line between those two types of activity. And you know, that's important because that line goes back to the, the seminal Supreme Court case in this area, Buckley v. Vallejo, where in the context of campaign finance regulation, the Supreme Court said it's just impossible for uh, government regulators to draw effective lines between express and if issue advocacy. When you're looking at issue advocacy, especially around elections, the, the, the support or opposition for a particular candidate and issue advocacy are, are invariably going to blur together. And when you have government regulators looking to get involved in making those very hard distinctions, uh, then trouble follows historically. So the, the rule in doing so does uh, th three specific things. It adopts what, what I've been calling an electioneering communications plus approach. So under the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, there was a new uh, breed of political activity that was subject to regulation called electioneering communications. And it imposed a blackout period where uh, corporations, both for and nonprofit um, and, and, uh, and labor organizations, uh, were, were unable to engage in any uh, communication, any broadcast, sat satellite, or cable communication that simply mentioned a candidate within the 30 days before a primary or the 60 days before a general election. Th this rule takes a very similar approach, but it's much broader. So it covers not just broadcast cable and satellite communications, but virtually any communication that a, that, that a group in, engages in, including something like the comments that the ACLU submitted if we were to post them to our website. So the, uh, the, 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 election, communi the election, electioneering communications plus approach would cover any communication, including something like this that's up on the website that mentions a candidate within the 30 days before a primary or 60 days before a general election, or, and this is pretty remarkable, if you even mention a political party that's represented in the election in the 60 days before the general election, that's a covered communication. So either you need to take that communication down from your website, uh, which means that the ACLU, we would have to purge literally tens of thousands of individual web pages to determine if any of them mentions a candidate or a party in the 60 days before an election, or we would have to figure out some way of accounting for the cost in producing those communications and include those in our, include that in our tax filings. Um, so so it's, it's extremely broad there. And then we also pointed out that because of the fact that you have in a presidential year, you're going to have rolling primaries. So the, the primary blackout period is going to end after another one has begun. And because it, you're covering mentioning just a presidential candidate, right? that means that in, for instance, 2012, if this rule had been in place, it would have covered uh, almost 300 days of that year. So it's not limited to just the 30 and 60 day blackout periods. It goes much, much further than that. In addition to the Electioneering Communications Plus uh, provision in the rule, they, the, the IRS has actually incorporated almost the same thing as the facts and circumstances test, uh, which, which uh, uh, interferes with their ability to engage in a bright line, which, actually, which, which will introduce the same kinds of structural issues that very likely led to what you saw happen earlier last year. And so they, they have adopted what many call a functional equivalence test, uh, meaning that if a communication doesn't include express words of advocacy um, or opposition, vote for, elect, support, defeat, even if it doesn't include those words, and even if it doesn't actually mention the name of a candidate, 
if it's susceptible of no reasonable interpretation other than uh, an express electioneering communication, it's now covered under this new definition of uh, candidate-related political activity. And historically, theoretically, a reasonable observer should be able to tell the difference between those two different types of communications, express advocacy and issue advocacy. Historically, uh, regulators are very bad at that job, which creates a huge amount of uncertainty for groups like the ACLU that are engaged in nonpartisan issue advocacy, especially around elections. So a good example, it's an, an oldie but a goodie, goes back to the, the early 1970s after the, the passage of the, the, first, uh, the, the first comprehensive campaign finance law, where the ACLU sought to run an ad in the New York Times criticizing President Richard Nixon, who was then running for re-election, for uh, his position on court-ordered desegregation. The New York Times actually refused to run that ad, saying that even though it didn't include express words of advocacy or express words of opposition, that it counted as a campaign ad. Uh, and the ACLU actually had to go to court to sue to force the New York Times to run that, that advertisement. So that's, that's a good concrete example of the danger in the functional equivalence approach. And then finally, third, and I'll, I'll uh, be very brief with this, the, the, the rule expressly extends to completely nonpartisan voter education, voter registration, get out the vote drives, and to nonpartisan candidate forums within that 30, 60 day blackout period. Uh, and, and the rule concedes this. It says, you know, we realize that this will cover completely nonpartisan education and we see co completely nonpartisan voter registration or mobilization activity and we see comment on whether that's an issue. And so I think you'll see if you go through the, the uh, tens of thousands of comments that have been submitted, that's one of the big issues that especially groups uh, that are traditionally associated with the progressive end of the ideological spectrum have raised significant concerns with. So that, that's a basic that's a, a basic breakdown of, of what the what the rule would do. Uh, and, and again, if, if you go back to the core of wh what this rule does and why it's a problem, it's because it breaks down that line between express campaign advocacy and issue advocacy, which raises significant chilling concerns for free speech in, in America. Thanks very much. Thank you, Gabe. <clears throat> Next, we'll be hearing from uh, Lawrence E. Gold, who is a partner at Trister, Wa Trister Ross, uh, he, where he concentrates his practice on working with labor unions, advocacy, and charitable organizations, political organizations, political services providers, and others so they can succeed in the political, legislative, and issue arenas. He regularly deals in particular with the Federal Election Commission and the Internal Revenue Service and state election agencies, making him very qualified to be speaking on this subject. He argued before the Supreme Court in the case of McConnell v. FEC, one of the last big campaign finance cases, and I personally think that your argument was spectacular in that, so uh, that's a personal note. <clears throat> um, he sought, in, on behalf of the AFL-CIO uh, and a broad coalition of labor and other groups, he sought a First Amendment ruling striking down the restrictions of independent broadcast communications. <clears throat> he is an associate general counsel of the AFL-CIO focusing on political and advocacy law. He has practiced for his entire career labor and employment law on behalf of na national labor organizations, local unions, and allied groups. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for uh, your kind words. Um, the, on behalf of the AFL-CIO and a number of national labor organizations with their counsel, uh, I filed uh, comments on this notice of proposed rulemaking last week, 
I'm not here representing any of those groups today uh, in my remarks, but I do want to talk about those comments and the perspectives of, uh, of unions on them. Uh, the, the focus of the rulemaking, as has been described, is on 501c4 organizations, advocacy organizations, so-called social welfare organizations. Uh, but the IRS in this rulemaking, even though the immediate focus of the rulemaking is on 501c4s and some way to define their political activities and thereby define what it is they cannot do as their primary purpose, asks several other questions for comment, which is why labor and other organizations have also weighed in here. The IRS has asked whether or not whatever standard it imposes with respect to 501c4s also should apply to 501c5s, which are unions and other labor organizations, 501c6s, which are trade associations, chambers of commerce, and the like, uh, and should define what is the political activity that 501c3 charities uh, cannot do at all, as well as uh, to reach whether or not under the political portion of the code, section 527, if you can follow all these numbers, uh, the definition of political activity that they're proposing here also ought to define what is political activity under 527, which then, importantly, defines for all of these other organizations the kinds of activities that, if they engage in, will subject them to tax, and if they engage in too much at some point, uh, will mean that they are no longer 501c organizations. Now, if that sounded confusing, uh, it is because this is, for sure, a complex uh, area uh, which is very sensitive because it does go to core uh, political and uh, legislative activity and advocacy activity by a variety of organizations. And while these, it, it's vital that the Internal Revenue Code uh, enforce and apply standards uh, to distinguish among organizations and that tax exemption is not granted lightly, uh, it is uh, clearly, surely the case that what's been proposed here uh, is uh, it goes well beyond any sensible uh, approach to defining political activity and determining or suggesting how different organizations ought to be able to uh, carry on uh, their regular business. Uh, there is another aspect of this which I think has not been mentioned, uh, and that is uh, so-called primary purpose. I guess it was mentioned, uh, Cleta Mitchell mentioned it, the notion being that in order to qualify under provision of the tax code, uh, there has to be something about you that qualifies there. Uh, the code takes different approaches to different groups. 501c3s under the code uh, cannot engage in any political activity. That's clear. The IRS, by regulation, has defined uh, social welfare organizations, 501c4s, as uh, political activity. They can do it, but it cannot be their primary purpose. With respect to labor organizations, there is nowhere that the IRS has ever defined a primary purpose, and it is certainly never said in any precedential way, whether the statute or regulation uh, or any kind of uh, in ruling by the IRS, uh, that political activity is inappropriate or that labor unions have a particular primary purpose. And that's a very important point which underscores that a one-size-fits-all approach here uh, is, uh, is inadvisable. Uh, and contrary to uh, what the rules themselves say. Uh, I want to talk about uh, labor organizations a bit here and where the, uh, and how they are characterized in the code. The exemption, the tax exemption for labor organizations goes back to 1909. It's 105 years old. And as I just indicated, at no point in that century uh, has there been any binding decision by the Congress or binding statement by the Congress, by the IRS's regulatory agency or otherwise, that uh, political activity is not appropriate for labor organizations or that some kind of primary purpose 
uh, a test ought to be applied to labor organizations that excludes all political activity, however defined. Uh, and that's very significant, and it's not an accident. Uh, because you look at uh, all these rules are the product of history uh, and about and of the times when they were enacted. And when the code was enacted or the, the exemption was enacted for labor organizations, there already was a substantial history of the labor movement being involved in political and legislative activity. I'm not saying they are ex exclusive in that regard, but the fact is, ever since the labor movement became a significant organized force in the late 19th century, political activity, activity engaged with legislation uh, and advocacy beyond workplace representation has always been a core part of their mission. And the notion now uh, that by rule, either this version of it or some other version of it could sweep all that out and tell unions that uh, any anything you, any uh, effort you uh, undertake in order to influence politics or influence legislation uh, means that you are not uh, adhering to your core purposes, to your primary purpose, or to the, what it is to be a labor organization uh, is not appropriate. Uh, and yet that is, the, uh, that is clearly what the uh, IRS has uh, suggested uh, will be the case uh, if this rulemaking is extended. Let me describe a few other aspects of uh, labor organizations. First, the, the exemption applies primarily to unions, which are organizations uh, selected by workers and comprised of workers to represent them in collective bargaining in the workplace, but it's not confined to them. Uh, it also applies to organizations that are sponsored by and related to, uh, to unions uh, and that carry out activities that unions themselves can engage in. In fact, the leading case uh, by the old Board of Tax Appeals uh, that defined what is a labor organization, which is 75 years ago, uh, had to do with a, actually a corporation that was created by a number of unions in Portland, Oregon, uh, in order to, uh, it was a building corporation, essentially for all the offices and the hiring hall and the meeting hall and the social and recreational facilities of unions in that area. And the IRS uh, challenged, the, the tax exemption was challenged, and the court held, no, labor is a broad concept. Uh, these unions, these organizations have come together. They created a facility in order to enable them to carry out their functions. It, too, is entitled uh, to this exemption. Unions um, are they're democratic organizations. They're comprised of voluntary members. Uh, they're unique, I think, among all the taxes and categories in that they are uniformly membership organizations uh, and uh, that carry out uh, you know, the, the will of, of their members. Uh, that is a product of history and culture, and it's also a product of federal law, federal requirements that determine uh, how union officers are elected and the rights of members uh, within unions. Uh, there's a lot of talk about disclosure, uh, and one point about this rule is uh, it won't necessarily itself address the disclosure obligations or consequences of any of the organizations that it might affect, including 501c4s. But one thing that does set unions apart uh, that I think is not uh, sufficiently recognized is that unions are actually completely transparent with respect to their finances, and that's because of labor law. There is a federal labor law that goes back to 1959, the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, that requires every union to report annually in public reports to the Labor Department all of its income and all of its spending to the point of itemizing its income and spending at $5,000 a year thresholds, which are very low thresholds when you consider uh, the massive amounts of money that can be spent uh, in, in the political sphere and the legislative sphere. No other institution in America is 
uh, regulated in that sense. So they're highly disclosing. Another aspect of uh, it's been a lot talked about, not referred to in this rulemaking, is the fear, the concern that certain organizations might be conduits for spending, political and other spending, by other organizations. Uh, and I think it is notable that uh, in part because of the disclosure I just mentioned, uh, it, is for, it is impossible for labor organizations to be the conduits of others' political or other spending. It can't be done. Even without this, it's not done. I mean, as a matter of culture and history, uh, unions don't operate that way. Uh, and there are other labor laws that preclude certain employers from providing money to union and employers a broad term as well uh, to prevent unions from being conduits to other spending. The point of my comments uh, is, uh, is not to say uh, that the IRS should be imposing these kinds of rules on other organizations and leaving unions alone. Uh, as, as the AFL-CIO and others explained in their comments, and as Gabe Rotman did, and I think everybody on the panel did, uh, the categories and the distinctions uh, that the IRS are proposing are just, are just inappropriate, really, for any organization. Uh, but, it is, but what I do want to underscore is that uh, again, uh, these organizations differ from each other. Uh, each has its own history. Uh, each has its own rights. And it is necessary that any kind of regulation in this area that deals with political activities has to be sensitive to that, take that into account. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, this proposal doesn't do it. Uh, it would be best if it were withdrawn and rethought uh, and that there was a true involvement of those affected in any effort to more uh, specifically define what is political activity for whatever purpose that the IRS chooses uh, to apply that to. Thank you, Larry. Uh, finally, we'll be hearing from David Keating. David is the president of the Center for Competitive Politics, uh, one of maybe the only organization dedicated to campaign freedom in the sense that we see it, uh, and litigating on that behalf. <clears throat> uh, he has founded speechnow.org in 2007, which means that he's responsible uh, indirectly for super PAC, so anyone can blame him for that if they want, or give him plaudits, uh, as the case may be. Um, <clears throat> and he, the group won the lawsuit as head in the D.C. Circuit uh, for super PACs. Prior to joining CCP, he was the executive director of the Club for Growth, the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. In 1996, he was appointed to the National Commission on Restructuring the Internal Revenue Service, also very apropos right now, by then Senator Bob Dole because of his leading role in the development and passage of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Welcome, David. Thank you. Well, I'd like to spend a few minutes about how we got here. We heard a little bit of it from Cleta, but uh, we still don't obviously know exactly what happened at the IRS and what they did. But I think a, the most likely aspect is the IRS was put under a lot of pressure. Uh, in fact, uh, Lois Lerner said in October 2010, quote, everyone is up in arms because they don't like it, meaning all the ads that were going on. Federal Election Commission can't do anything about it. They just want the IRS to fix the problem. Now, the uh, Center for Competitive Politics has a whole timeline uh, that Matt Neese, who's in the audience, our external relations director, developed. It's excellent. And it shows the kind of pressure the agency was under from Congress, from the administration, through its speeches. So it's not surprising if there wasn't any nefarious direction of the IRS by the Treasury Department or the White House uh, staff 
but they can get what the bosses wanted. And the bosses in Congress, the bosses in the White House, clearly wanted the IRS to take action. So I don't think it's any surprise that they did. What they did, obviously, was outrageous and inexcusable. So what, what is the fundamental uh, pressure here? It's in pressure from people in power who want to get reelected. And that's really how you can explain a lot of campaign finance law. And I think, in part, what the IRS did here. Incumbents don't like criticism. They never have. They never will. It's human nature not to like criticism. So the fundamental human instinct is to try to shut down criticism or shut up criticism. And in this case, since the Congress wouldn't act, the FEC wouldn't act, the FCC wouldn't act, and the SEC wouldn't act, maybe the IRS would. And they did. Now, part of the reason why, and we heard a little bit from Gabe, uh, that the IRS has this facts and circumstances test that is used. As you might guess from the name of it, it's not doesn't give people a lot of guidance going in about what you can do if it depends on the facts and circumstances. And if it depends on the facts and circumstances, then it depends on who you're getting applying these facts and circumstances. I would not, for example, want to be a gay rights group that gets a born-again IRS auditor going over the facts and circumstances of what you've done. Because the facts and circumstances test is so elastic, you can cover virtually anything as political activity if you wanted to. So the rule that the IRS has been following in the past is hopelessly bad. It needs to be fixed. The proposed rule that they've come up with is so bad that Virtually everyone thinks it's terrible. I think they've got to withdraw it and start all over again. I also want to point out, not only did the IRS totally ignore uh, the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, the key campaign finance decision, they ignored the Massachusetts Citizens for Life decision, Virtually every Supreme Court decision since 1976 on the First Amendment, the IRS didn't address at all in the proposed rulemaking in its explanation of it or any of the drafting of the rules itself. So the IRS clearly needs to go read some Supreme Court decisions before they try to write this rule again. The other thing the IRS may want to try to do is to read the federal laws that apply that they ignored in writing this. Uh, they ignored the Paperwork Reduction Act. They have a, a time estimate for complying with this law that everyone who studies this agrees is a total joke. The second thing is they, there's something called the Regulatory Flexibility Act that requires uh, initial regulatory flexibility analysis on any proposed rule. The IRS just said, we're exempt. This is not true. If you read the law itself, it says... When there's a notice of proposed rulemaking involving the internal revenue laws of the United States, the agency shall prepare and make available for public comment a regulatory flexibility analysis. They just said it doesn't apply. I don't know how they got that. The Administrative Procedure Act clearly states the IRS needs to follow some guidelines, which it specifically said in the rulemaking did not apply here either. The McCain-Feingold law passed uh, in early 2000s uh, 
has a specific provision on this 30-60-day rule that Gabe talked about. I'm going to quote from the law here itself. Obviously, the IRS didn't read this one either. Nothing in this subsection on electioneering communications may be construed to establish, modify, or otherwise affect the definition of political activities for purposes of the Internal Revenue Code. So what does the IRS do? They take the, the definition in McCain-Feingold and they make it more expansive when the law itself says they're not even supposed to use it at all to define political activity. This is another example of how these rules are a total uh, joke. Finally, the Federal Election Campaign Act says the Federal Election Commission and the IRS shall consult and work together to promulgate rules, regulations, and forms which are mutually consistent. And yet the IRS has proposed regulations with one set of definition of express advocacy, the FEC having another definition, one definition of political activity, the FEC having another. This is not my definition of mutually consistent. So the IRS needs to go back to the drawing board. They need to read the First Amendment. They need to read the Supreme Court decisions. And they need to read the laws they ignored in writing this particular proposal. Uh, now, if you want to read more about what's wrong with the proposal, uh, at our website, campaignfreedom.org, uh, you can see this timeline I spoke of earlier. And you can also see all the notable comments filed by a wide spectrum of organizations. Some of the uh, legal analysis is truly spectacular. Many proposed, uh, many of the comments span 30 to 50 pages each and make uh, different points. Uh, I also wanted to note the comments done by the Alliance for Justice. And those of you who are tax nerds, uh, if you want to read something that's really spectacular, read the Alliance's comments. Uh, even I, someone who's very familiar with this area, my head was spinning when I finished reading them about how hopelessly complicated this area of the law is. And that, I submit, is one of the key problems. You look at the Constitution itself, and what does it say? On the First Amendment, presumably the most important amendment because it came first, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It didn't talk about making a lot of complicated laws that you need to hire lots of fine lawyers to navigate what you're allowed to say about candidates. This is lunacy, what we've got here. We need to come up with something really simple. Uh, so when people want to talk about their government, petition their government, change their government, people can figure out what the law is and follow it. Uh, one, that means getting rid of a lot of these laws. And two, the ones that are left, putting huge exemptions in terms of the amount that you can spend before you have to try to figure out what these laws mean. So as far as what kind of rules we should have, I'll try to explain it in a minute, but it's fairly simple. The ACLU proposed this, our group proposed it, but basically if the IRS is going to define what political activity is, let's just follow what the Supreme Court has said. And the Supreme Court has said, express advocacy telling people to vote for or against a candidate. So that also means if your organization gives money to a party, gives money to a candidate, or tells people how to vote, that's political activity. That's a pretty clear line. It's something the Federal Election Commission already has rules on, and the IRS should just follow that. The other alternative, and I like this one even better, is for the IRS to just get out of the business altogether. 
It's a tax collection agency. Imagine if we asked the FEC to write a tax rule, what it would look like. It wouldn't probably look, the people at the IRS and tax lawyers would probably laugh at it. Well, the people in the campaign finance law are looking at this IRS rule and you know, they either laugh or they cry. They laugh because it's so hopelessly bad, they cry because it's actually a serious proposal by the Treasury Department. So um, they should get out of the business altogether. And I, I, I would credit Nina Olson, who's the own national taxpayer advocate appointed by the IRS to be the ombudsman in the agency. And she pointed this out first, the IRS a tax agency is assigned to make inherently controversial determinations about political activity that another agency may be more qualified to make. Boy, she got that one right. <laughs> it may be advisable to separate political determinations from the function of revenue collection. There you go. So we already have the law that says they're supposed to work together, the IRS and the FEC. The FEC is in charge of deciding who is a political committee and who isn't. If you're a political committee, then guess what? You're not a social welfare group. This is pretty simple, relatively speaking. The states for groups that operate at the state level have similar FEC type agencies. And if they're found to be a political committee, then guess what? They're no longer a social welfare group. This would get the IRS out of the business of it altogether, harmonize all the rules, and everyone would be happy except the incumbents who don't like criticism. <laughs> ah, thank you very much, David. Well, before I open it up for questions from the audience, uh, I'm going to take moderator's privilege here and ask a question. Uh, I think everyone here probably has an opinion about it, which is what happens next? We have 143,000 plus possibly over comments on this. We have a lot of people very upset. Uh, we've heard some discussion about there being a public hearing, but uh, both... Uh, what do you see in the hourglass for going forward, or the uh, the not the hourglass, the uh, crystal ball? Crystal ball. That's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. Um, for either you, so, Clee, do you want to start? Well, you know the uh, the comments that I worked on and recommended that other people include was a request not for a hearing, but for multiple hearings around the country to allow people throughout the country to have an opportunity to be heard. Um, that's purely within the. So I know that there are a number of requests for hearings. Um, insofar as what the IRS will do, um, look, I mean, the, the um, IRS now is supposed to, under the law, it is supposed to review all public comments, catalog those, and before issuing final regulations, is supposed to uh, respond to those. Now, that's a pretty big task with the number that have been submitted. Whether or not they will take that seriously and actually follow that, I don't know. Because as David pointed out, the IRS, one of the things I didn't realize until I uh, started working on this, is that the IRS apparently historically takes the position that none of the laws, the Administrative Procedures Act, the Regulatory Flexibility Act, the uh, Paperwork Reduction Act, that they just normally, as a matter of course and standard protocols, conclude that that doesn't apply to them. And so this is how they always issue regulations. As I, I'm startled to learn that and to learn that Congress has allowed this to happen for decades, apparently. 
but um, there is apparently an entire body of law about uh, the extent to which the um, IRS is or is not subject to such basic laws as the Administrative Procedures Act. So I think that we have um, to watch very carefully what they do. I would like to see the Senate take up and pass the uh, bill passed by the House last week asking that this be deferred for at least a year. Um, the president has already said he would veto such a bill if it came to his desk. I doubt that the Senate will even bring it up. But I think that we need to continue to weigh in, and we need to be continuing to say this is not the proper role for the IRS, and they need to get out of this business altogether. Yeah, I'll take a crack at it. Look, no, it, whenever you predict the future, you're, you have a real... Uh, <laughs> The problem is the future eventually arrives, and then people can say you got it wrong. But I think uh, what's most, I, obviously, they're going to have a public hearing. They will try to rewrite the rules in some fashion. My guess is they'll try, they will try to finalize them as soon as they can. I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, and I think what will happen is uh, the rules will still be bad, and they'll be challenged in court. And I think there's a good chance that the court will eventually say no, the way the rules are written. Are, uh, don't, are, are unconstitutional, or they might just say, there's a lot of laws that I already quoted, that these laws do actually apply. So this thing may bounce around for a number of years, and a lot of people are going to be guessing for a long time uh, what the law is and how it would apply and how it should apply. I think there's a lot about this that's very new as far as how the you know, the IRS makes rules and you know it hasn't made rules in this area in a very long time and even rules that it has considered or announced that it may uh, proceed with uh, 30 years later literally it has not concluded so uh, it's very hard to say uh, you know of course what the IRS really will proceed much harder I think than the FEC or some other agencies that are regularly functioning rulemaking bodies um, I will be surprised, though, if the IRS issues any final rules that are anything like this. I think that um, I haven't by any means, you know, obviously read all the comments, but I've read a lot of them, the substantive comments. And the few that I, that I see that are generally or, or primarily supportive of the proposal itself are, I have to say, very thin, uh, ignore very significant issues. Uh, and the, there really does not seem to be a very... Uh, good substantive argument on behalf of much of what the IRS has proposed. And that's not usually the case. I mean, I'm very used to uh, FEC rulemakings where the issues are close. There are, there are strong legal arguments uh, to be made on both sides. I don't think this is that kind of, uh, kind of a situation. And there's another aspect of this that I don't think we've mentioned, and that is, you know, we've talked about primary purpose. Uh, you can't decide for an organization uh, that where, where political activity is going to be defined out of primary purpose, which is the IRS's view on 501c4 groups. You can't define what that political activity is that can't be part of their primary purpose unless you also say what primary means. And that's been an unsettled aspect of this for a very long time. And in this rulemaking, the IRS failed to make any kind of proposal about what primary means. Does it mean more than 50%? Does it mean 40%? What does it mean? It's been a, a, a debated and uncertain aspect of uh, tax law for a very long time. 
so one thing that uh, a number of commenters, including the union commenters, said was you cannot decide primary purpose of this rulemaking without coming up with your own proposal, but you also can't uh, do this in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, so uh, I will be very surprised if what we see at the end of this is, uh, reflects uh, what, uh, what has been proposed. And I, I would agree with with all that's just been said. I I, I do believe that uh, Commissioner Koskinen has uh, has said that they're not going to go forward with with the rule, and that they'll be hold, they'll be holding at least um, you know a series of public hearings to uh, to hear from to hear from people out um, outside the Beltway. I, I you know I, and I I would also just echo if you really do and you go look at the comments, you know it, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you, you know generally. Um, you'll you'll find you know the ACLU taking a pretty uh, a pretty strong free speech position, um, but but it's rare that you'll see the you know the the breadth of progressive uh, issue advocacy groups uh, echoing exactly what we're saying, especially with um, you know their their history of of uh, being concerned about the tax law being used to interfere with their social welfare mission. Uh, and so you've seen groups like the NAACP and, and uh, numerous others, um, you know, submit very, very thoughtful, very detailed comments, uh, very critical of the rule. So I, I think I would be, again, yeah, very surprised if, uh, if, if anything's put out that, that looks similar to this. And, and if it is, I think there's also an interesting constitutional question that comes along with it, um, which we didn't raise before in, in the campaign finance uh, sphere, th these rules tend to be restrictions on activity. So you can't say this. Here, it's not a flat restriction. It's if you say too much of this, then your your tax status is in jeopardy. But the the extent to which it would cover just absolutely all issue advocacy by a, a social welfare group, even issue advocacy that doesn't even come close to touching uh, partisan politicking, uh, you know, a, a good example would be the ACLU taking out an ad close to an election, urging a senator to vote for NSA surveillance reform. The fact that that would be covered and that we could be in jeopardy of losing our C4 and even our C3 tax tax exempt status for engaging in those types of communications raises a very interesting constitutional issue of unconstitutional conditions. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that that's, that's a question that, that courts ha haven't grappled with in such a stark fashion as of yet. So I'd be looking for that as well. Excellent point. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions for anyone here. Uh, uh, if you state your name, affiliation, any affiliation you're willing to own up to, uh, and please, in the form of a question uh, that we can uh, ask for our panel here. And there's a mic uh, that will come down uh, here on the side. Yeah, I, I had inquired at the beginning of the program whether we were being uh, broadcast or being recorded in any way. We're being we? broadcast, yeah. What? Broadcast, yes. Is that on tape? We're going to be, we're being taped? Yes. Okay. Just make it clear so you guys can understand what the significance of being here is going to be. It seems to me you have a question as to Mr. Burris asked, which is akin to me, to a client. He turned to all four of you, and I think all four of you are attorneys, and he said, what's going to happen next? Nobody knew. And that's really kind of professionally silly because everybody knows what's going to happen next. All you got to do is look at the IRS enforcement history. And I would suggest the following scenario is quite realistic. Your law office is going to be seized by the federal government. They will send perhaps 30 agents in. Mm. Did you uh, – sorry, do you have a question? Did, uh, well, I'm just trying to say that apparently nobody here is aware of what they do to people. 
and the IRS is a regular, does anybody disagree with this? The IRS, as a mechanism, will seize offices, example, certified public accountant. They will take every file. They will download every computer, and they'll all carry guns. Yeah. Now, does anybody disagree with that? Well, this is a proposed rulemaking right now, so. I I understand that, but the question you raised was not about just rulemaking. It's what they're going to do next. And I would suggest to you, if you remember, United States versus Hoffa which was a 60s case and which raised the issue of wiretapping lawyers. So we know what they're going to do. The only issue we've got is, is it rulemaking? Okay, I'll take, I'll uh, take, I'll take the question. And, and yes, I do disagree with you. I don't expect the IRS to come in and, and seize my law office or wiretap me just because I filed comments on this. Um, and, you know, I think uh, there's a lot been said about uh, the IRS, uh, obviously, in the last year. Um, my view of what happened with respect to the review of exempt applications, uh, and I haven't followed it uh, as closely as others have perhaps, but uh, from my experience in dealing with the agency on behalf of clients seeking exemption under 501c3 and c4 in particular, uh, is you know it's an agency that uh, lacks uh, an internal uh, professionalism and, consist- and consistency on these matters. Uh, it can be very arbitrary. Uh, I have not detected, in my experience with them, uh, political bias, but I think there are certain things about the way it's, it, the agency is structured that are problems uh, and ought to be approached. Uh, one of it is it's an opaque agency uh, on this uh, very much. The procedures are not well known. Uh, the, it's a very unpredictable agency in terms of timing. There's very little accountability in the process of reviewing applications. Uh, there are, is a lack of procedure. Uh, for entertaining complaints about the abuse of tax-exempt status by other org- by organizations. And there's no question that some organizations abuse their tax-exempt status. Uh, and the purpose, just as there's no question there's an abuse of any other uh, regulatory uh, standard uh, that exists in the law and that federal agencies enforce. But there is no mechanism in the IRS to entertain complaints and to process them in a way that produces any kind of defined result. And that's very different from the FEC and other agencies, and that ought to be fixed. Uh, There's also one more point about it. Uh, There's a lack of legal development uh, under the Internal Revenue Code in these areas, in part because the way the Internal Revenue Code is structured, and there's something called the Anti-Injunction Act, which makes it very difficult to have review of circumstances where the IRS applies certain laws. The IRS, it's very easy for the IRS to moot out cases, moot out litigation, where the law in this area might be developed. And I think that's hampered uh, the development of uh, clear standards over time. So I think that's what we, sh- we should be looking. But the notion that uh, this is an agency that's going to swoop in in the night and, and seize my law office or anybody else, I think, is fanciful. And I think we should not go there. Anyone has a further? Uh, well, uh, one second. Uh, I'll give you one All right. One, uh, one sec. Uh, anyone else? In the back right up there? I learned about the Anti-Injunction Act for the Obamacare litigation. It's a good point. Uh, Gabe? Uh, Gabe Latner with the Cato Institute. I have a question for Mr. Rotman, but the panel generally, you touched on at the end how the ACLU is both a 501c4 and a 501c3. In a non-litigation, non-fighting the IRS solution to this problem, is any organization that wants to do election advocacy just setting up a PAC a viable alternative? Well, so that, no, that's a great point. I, I, the, the, and, and they can now, right? 
Um, so, but there's a, there's a couple of problems which actually highlight issues with the rule. So given the way that the rule is structured, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that, that you, you can set up a 520, uh, you can separate, you can set up a, a separate segregated fund, right? Which will be taxes of 527. The problem is, is that there's actually, uh, 527s are limited in their ability, they're limited in what they can do as well. So they have to, their primary purpose has to be in furtherance of their, of an exempt function, which is defined uh, which is defined in Section 527 of the of the tax code, which is generally speaking political activity, but it's a lot narrower than the definition of candidate related political activity under the proposed rule. So there would actually be a universe of activity that, if you engaged in with your your separate segregated fund, uh, you would be in you would you would lose that exempt status, and then if you did it under your C4 under the rule, then it would count against your permissible allotment of CRPA. So there's there's actually a problem with even creating a separate political uh, political entity to engage in that that activity. Hmm. Anyone anyone else add on that? Yeah, another question out there. I'm Ken Doyle. I'm a reporter with BNA. Um, I'm just I'm curious whether there are concerns, though, of, among any of the panelists about disclosure of funding sources for activities that influence elections, whether you feel that the, the, the status quo is is good, is acceptable, whether there are any things that you think ought to be done by the IRS or by somebody else to incre increase disclosure. It has been a, a big issue. I know that it's, you know, there are a lot of divisions about it, but I'm just curious whether people want to take that on. Yeah, that's a good, great question because we will have, I think, some disagreement on that. So, well, I think that the problem is, Ken, as you may, as you well know, that a lot of the people who clamor for disclosure are not really interested in disclosure. They're, they're not interested in transparency, they're looking for a target list. I mean, the fact of the matter is, um, you just take Americans for Prosperity. That's not my client. I don't, you know, work with them on a regular basis. Um, but Americans for Prosperity raises money from um, direct mail. It raises money from a lot of donors. But it runs an ad talking about Kay Hagan's votes on Obamacare, which is absolutely correct. I mean, she voted for the darn thing. She's w wishing that she didn't have to be, that the voters weren't being reminded of that. But the news articles say Charles and David Koch attack Kay Hagan. So my question to you is, I just sort of throw this back to you. Americans for Prosperity is associated with Charles and David Koch, and every time they do anything, Charles and David Koch are listed as the source of the communication, whether or not they had anything to do with it. And so I would not feel, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I don't worry about independent organizations spending money in uh, political activity uh, without disclosing donors, because I know what happens to conservative donors is that they get listed and blacklisted and it doesn't happen to the same degree um, to uh, liberal donors. 
And so, you know, the thing that I, but I keep coming back and saying that that is not an issue here. I had dinner with one of my liberal friends recently, and she w believed that these rules were going to cause disclosure of all donors to C4s. I said, it doesn't say anything about disclosure. Well, she was shocked. And so all this stuff about dark money and all, the fact of the matter is it used to be soft money. And so they got rid of soft money. And now there's dark money, and they want to get rid of dark money. The fact is the people who are mainly worried about that, what they really want is to spend your tax money. That's really what they want. They want to not have individuals be able to spend their money on political activity. And I, I frankly am not somebody who thinks that, um, that that's a concern. What I do have a concern about is the intimidation and the attacks, the personal attacks, the threats. I've had you know, all of the... Um, you know, I represented an organization in 2008 that ran an ad about, uh, and it's, it had one donor, one primary donor, and he was disclosed, and he got letters from a leftist organization saying, we're going to turn you over to the IRS, and the group had two IRS complaints, three Justice Department complaints, and two FEC complaints filed against it because they didn't want the organization to talk about the, they didn't want to be able to run an ad talking about the relationship of then-candidate uh, Barack Obama and Bill Ayers. Well, I think that's a legitimate subject that they ought to be able to run ads about and let people make up their minds. But the contortions that you had to go through legally that Citizens United has removed, I think that, you know, that that's a good thing. And I also think that, you know, the FEC regulations, that if somebody gives you money to uh, make a particular communication, that you have to disclose those. And believe me, I've had to say that to donors. I've had to say, you have two choices. You can have control over how your money's spent, but you don't get anonymity. You can have anonymity, but you don't get to control how the money's spent. And you get to choose. The donor gets to choose, and I think that's the way it ought to be. Uh, on, on a point, uh, two points on that. I do think that there might be an element of this, is my interpretation, if they can pass a rule, not this rule, but something that makes 501c4s, which do have limited uh, anonymity if you're not doing as Cleta said, then they can sort of force them to become donor disclosing 527s, which I think is uh, advantageous or the way some people think that the world should be run. Uh, that's my own personal interpretation. Yeah, I would just say very quickly, I, I think I think uh, it's a legitimate question when you're talking about express, express advocacy. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of when, when disclosure is warranted, but here we're, we're not talking about express advocacy. The, the the rule goes far, far beyond that to include you know anti-war protests and it also you know or or uh, advocacy for civil liberties, uh, and it, it could it could result in disclosure for for pure pure issue advocacy. Well, so, so this is also a part of the problem, right? Is that the proposed rule wouldn't necessarily address that, but what it would do is it would include, it would broaden the scope of the definition of political activity to include a vast amount of issue advocacy. And then, if you engaged in too much of that issue advocacy, then you would have to disclose your donors publicly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and and you know, if you're talking about that, that receives you know under the you know under the entire. Uh, you know, corpus of law dealing with anonymous, uh, anonymous, nonpartisan political speech. Uh, you have a constitutional right to engage in that advocacy anonymously. I mean, I think Gabe and Cleta covered it well. I I do think that this is an attempt by the IRS to respond to the pressure 
to force more organizations into a 527 box uh, that would force them to disclose uh, their donors. But as, as Gabe has pointed out, it covers a lot of activity that is not express advocacy and doesn't even get close to express advocacy. Um, again, I think a lot of this is driven by incumbents that don't like criticism and they want the agency uh, to help shut it down. And that's what this is all about. Uh, in terms of disclosure, if an organization, and Cleta alluded to this, but I want to make this explicit so the audience out there understands that may be watching online, uh, the federal election laws and the Federal Election Commission rules say that if someone raises money for a nonprofit social welfare organization that's earmarked for express advocacy, that needs that has to be disclosed under current law. I assume people are following current law, but if they're not, there are enforcement actions for that. So I want to make sure that is clear. Um, the law does cover disclosure of such contributions uh, already. And one of the true ironies of, of this whole thing, for some in the audience may not realize this, but the backdrop of campaign finance law is what we're discussing this in, which is often forgotten that there's some there's an idea that there's something about mentioning a candidate and saying vote for this guy that is corrupting two politicians. That's still the idea. The entire reason from 1976 that we're doing this to begin with is that there's something about Obamacare is not a good law, but you say Obama, so maybe versus vote for Obama that's constitutionally different uh, is the world that we live in and why we have this entire regime whatsoever. But one of the oddest things about disclosure on a broader level is that there's part of campaign finance law seeks to raise the tenor of the debate to something more fair, whereas disclosure seems to lower it to complete name calling and uh, pointing out donors rather than ideas. Uh, other questions? This is Paul Jossi. I just want to follow up on that. Um, you know, when I when I hear terms like blackout, right, or or telling a nonprofit that they can't talk about a candidate when it mentioned uh, at, at the time when it's most important, uh, right before an election, that that to me is really scary. And I and I just want to um, I would just like some opinions on that that specific thing, the constitutionality of it. I know a lot of this came back from uh, our was originated from uh, McConnell VFEC and, and McCain-Feingold. But just just the, the fact that an agency can tell a group of citizens they can't mention a candidate uh, during a political season, um, specifically the constitutionality of that. Thank you. Uh, well, I, just, I wanted to, I think it's, I, I think it's really unconstitutional. Um, I believe that what we're really missing in that debate, again, going back to the idea that we have to be corrupting politicians in a quid pro quo type of way, that's still the regime we live under, that we, we still have to talk about whether or not that's narrowly tailored to achieve any end whatsoever. And that what the obvious thing is, as David is pointing out, is that this is the time when politicians most would like to shut you up uh, from criticizing them. So it's opportune for them. Uh. Well, I think the most interesting thing, David uh, made reference to it earlier, when the, that the IRS had uh, adopted the FEC definition of electionary communication and put it into these proposed regs. The problem is they completely butchered the, uh, in the transition, uh, they didn't adopt the electionary communication provisions pers identically. One of the things in the, uh, one of the provisions in the, in the electionary communications definition that's found in uh, 
the campaign finance law that the FEC administers is a requirement that it has to be radio or television, it has to be uh, within the 30 days before a primary or 60 days before election, and it has to be, be capable of being received by at least 50,000 people who can vote for the candidate referenced. The IRS took all that out. So presumably, a, a group, a C4 organization could have a meeting and invite someone who's, you know, maybe they're in Illinois and they invite somebody from California, a congressman who's up for re-election from California to come and speak to them and send out an alert letting people know that this person's coming to speak and that whole thing, even though they can't even vote for him or her, that would count, that would not count toward their primary purpose. I mean, these rules, it is hard to describe how poorly these have been drafted. I mean, you cannot say narrowly tailored in the same paragraph, much less the same sentence with uh, these regulations. They are so badly drafted. Nonpartisan uh, candidate debates where an organization invites all the candidates to come and speak. So presumably, citizens show up on their own time and come and ask questions and hear candidates for office instead of relying on 30-second ads. And we're going to say that that is somehow not in the common good, the social welfare? I mean, it's, it's just remarkable, the breadth of these proposed regulations. And I think, you know, I'm very proud of, of Larry Gold and um, the uh, AFL-CIO and the other unions for recognizing and weighing in because I think that they will have a lot of impact because, believe me, agencies get started with rulemaking and they don't stop. And the likelihood of not extend, that these would not be extended ultimately to other 501c groups, I think, um, I think that, that, those, that would be highly likely that they would be ultimately. So... Uh, comments on the blackout provision? <laughs> well, it, the the provision it, it does hark back, as uh, Glita Mitchell says, to um, to the aspects of the McCain-Feingold law that uh, actually criminalized references in broadcasts by nonprofit groups, unions, and for-profit corporations, which are now you know have since been resolved to be unconstitutional. This is, of course, for a different purpose. It's not a straight-out prohibition, but it is um, a definition of something that is not part of your primary purpose, which, of course, is a deterrent against doing it. And uh, it, is, it, it is surprising, I think. It, it, it surprised me that the IRS would come out, would issue a proposal that was so ill-considered, poorly explained, I mean, really poorly justified even in the, in the preamble uh, that set it out, uh, and that the content of it would be so sweeping and, and guaranteed uh, to be, uh, you know, impossible uh, for compliance by organizations of whatever political stripe, but all different kinds of organizations. Uh, it, I, I felt it was fairly un pretty unprofessional uh, as far as a serious agency doing something, and I believe they have the capacity to do much better. Um, but I, as I said before, I'll be very surprised if uh, if the next step looks anything like this. In in this. I, I do think this is a good place to emphasize this point, which is the IRS was trying to make the rule clear by drawing these lines to say, if it's within this time, then it's political activity. 
But obviously that doesn't work because there's plenty of speech inside of 60 days of an election that is not political activity. And so how do you decide this? And I think the only way to draw this line is how the Supreme Court has indicated it should be drawn. And the line that's drawn that people can understand where we have some history is whether it expressly advocates for a candidate or not. And if you don't draw the line there, then you're giving the IRS bureaucracy a job that is inherently unsuited to do, which is deciding what is political activity that isn't express advocacy. Where do you draw that line? I mean, that is such a complicated question. You don't want the IRS doing this. They don't understand it. They don't understand the First Amendment. And they are not institutionally capable of applying that kind of test. It just can't be done. Now, lots of people want the agency to do this, but the fact is they're inherently unsuited to do it. So it's, it's a real, real problem. And I hope ultimately that the agency will decide to adopt this express advocacy test outlined by the Supreme Court or follow the National Taxpayers Advocate recommendation and get out of the business because we're only talking about what box people file their tax return under. Is it a C4 box? Is it a 527 box? And from the IRS's point of view, it doesn't matter because the tax collection is exactly the same. There's no difference in how much tax is paid by these organizations based on what they're doing. Um, the only real difference is between a 501c3 and the other C organizations. And the C3 groups are tax deductible, and Congress spoke clearly in the law, no political activity for these groups. But the other groups, there is no ban on, it, on political activity, and the IRS really, we have to keep in mind, we're not, we don't want the IRS to turn into a Greek tax collection agency, okay? <laughs> And when people start doubting the nonpartisan nature of our tax collection agency, this is not a good thing, okay? We need to have tax laws that are viewed as being fairly administered, not politically administered, just for the sake of the deficit and the agency as an agency that's respected. They need to get out of this business. Uh, and leave the political enforcement job to other agencies. We got the Federal Election Commission for uh, that. On the other hand, I mean, the, this is not, uh, this task was not invented by the IRS out of whole cloth. And I, I think that it has to be recognized that the reason it is in this area is because Congress has directed that it be in this area. Congress has established tax-exempt categories for organizations in order to operate without being taxed on their income. And there are classifications uh, in the code that we've talked about, and the IRS is the agency that enforces it. It is it's unavoidable that uh, under this uh, under the tax code as we have it that that agency makes some determinations as to what is political activity and what isn't, if only uh, to define it for purposes of Section 527. And the challenge is to do that in an intelligent, careful way that takes into account uh, First Amendment concerns, what the statute says, and how all this plays uh, into each other. So I, I don't think it's enough to say that they get out of the business, and I don't know that you mean that completely literally, David. Um, but uh, you know what they've done here, of course, is, is a terrible misfire, uh, and uh, the, you know, it needs to be uh, redone. 
Uh, and you know the the test that's been an, uh, around for a long time, this uh, somewhat subjective facts and circumstances test. Uh, it's certainly unclear uh, in many respects, but it is clear. It's certainly superior uh, if you have a clever agency uh, applying it. It's certainly superior to what they've come up with. But to say that the agency is not appropriate, I think, would require congressional action, and uh, they've got to cope with this. I, I agree. Or we could abolish the corporate tax code altogether. Uh, but that would be a uh, topic for another forum. Uh, I thank you all for joining us. Uh, please join us for lunch upstairs. I'll be on the second floor, the George M. Yeager Conference Center. And please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you.